Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. I know that hymn number 309, that's one we've probably only sung a couple of times. I encourage you, read those lyrics if you didn't get a chance to to really look at them a moment ago. Read those lyrics, Um, very encouraging, thoughtful lyrics, uh, and very scripturally minded. Uh, You get a chance this afternoon. Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 49. Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 49. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy." Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. This morning we're going to look mainly at the divine kingdom. And I want to to first of all... uh, kind of give you an idea of my goal here. There is a lot that can be said about the divine kingdom and certainly uh, the importance of the New Testament in revelation of the divine kingdom uh, is, is utterly important. Um, but my goal this morning will be more specifically about the divine kingdom from the context of Daniel's prophecy. And I want to stick to that uh, mainly Now, certainly we'll bring the New Testament ideas in in some places. But, Lord willing, when and if I get an opportunity to preach through the Olivet Discourse, we'll hear more about the divine kingdom from the perspective of Christ's preaching. Um, There is a lot of material to deal with when you talk about the divine kingdom. But I want to set up this morning the essence of the divine kingdom. Um, I may not answer every question that someone has about the divine kingdom, but you first of all have to note the essence of the divine kingdom to have other discussions about the divine kingdom. As I've been reading on the kingdom for some time now, uh, I started reading on it probably uh, 25 years ago or so, and my thoughts about the divine kingdom over time have been challenged and worked out over a period of time. And I'm reminded as I think about the divine kingdom 
I'm reminded of a, an evening sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached. He says, I do not understand the visions of Daniel or Ezekiel. That's a pretty big statement for Spurgeon because he was, uh, he was quite an intelligent man. He says, I do not understand the visions of Daniel or Ezekiel. I do not find many souls have been converted by the exquisite dissertations about the Battle of Armageddon and all those other fine things. I do not know the future. I shall not pretend to know. But I do preach this, Christ will come. I will not divide the house tonight, he says, by discussing whether the advent will be premillennial or postmillennial or anything of that. It is enough for me that he will come. There's a sense of that that's the essence of the kingdom that we have to get some things right. Before we can talk about some of the details, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, premillennial, pre-trib, dispensationalism, and the seven dispensations and the courses, and before you get into all of that, there's an essence to the kingdom. And some of that has to be looked at. And really what we find in the prophecy here through Daniel that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar is a real essence of the kingdom. If you note here in verse 44, Daniel says, in the days of those kings. Now this is a reminder back to the previous verses. Remember what the king has done. The king had a dream. The dream was bothering him. He couldn't get it out of his mind. He's so troubled by it. He calls all his magicians and conjurers and the Chaldeans together. And he says, I've got this terrible dream. And I want you to not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, but you have to tell me the dream itself. And they're like, whoa, wait a second. Hold on. Nobody can do that. Only the gods can tell you the dream and the interpretation. You need to tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it. He says, no way. It's not happening. And if you don't do what I tell you to do and tell me the dream too, I'm going to tear you guys from limb from limb. Sounds like fun times. Well, the guard is sent to go get Daniel and to let Daniel know what's been said and to let Daniel know, yeah, I'm taking you off because we're going to execute you. I know you're glad that I've knocked on your door today. And Daniel says, wait a second, what's, what's so important here? Why is this such a pressing issue? He tells him everything and Daniel says, all right, well, we need just a little bit of time and Daniel calls a prayer meeting. He and his three friends, they get together and they begin to pray. And God reveals not only the interpretation, but he reveals the dream itself. And now Daniel has gone before Nebuchadnezzar and he's told him the dream. He's told him the dream in such detail that even Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. But not only does he tell him the dream about this metal figure, this metal statue, gold and bronze and iron and clay and silver, but he tells him the interpretation of the dream. 
And the interpretation of the dream is that there will be a kingdom of Babylon, and it will reign for a little while, and then there's going to be another kingdom that comes along and swallows it up, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then that kingdom is going to be swallowed up by Greece, and then there's going to be a fourth kingdom that comes along, the, the, the Roman kingdom, and it's going to swallow Greece up. But then he names this kingdom. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Firstly, this morning, number one, all kingdoms are in God's decree. All kingdoms are in God's decree. We have to understand the decree of God is his purpose and his will, that which he has designed and desired, and he has said, it will be. That's his decree, and it is singular. It's not decrees, plural, it's singular. God has a will and a purpose in all of his being, and all of his will and purpose, it will be. And so there is not a kingdom, there is not a dictator, there is not a president, There is not a king, there is not a prince, or a queen, or a princess. There is no nation that has ever existed that was not inside and a part of the decree of God. And that's plainly shown here. So the decree of God being singular in nature tells us plainly each earthly kingdom rests in God's decree. Now, you need to understand, this is the unfolding of the prophecy. Do you, not, do, do you and I not recognize that Daniel here in very base form is, is explaining in progressive revelation the fact and the matter that there's not one earthly kingdom that has, does, or ever will exist that God himself has not decreed that kingdom? Ultimately, we have to see in the four kingdoms and even in the divine kingdom the ultimate sovereignty of God in all of things. Each earthly kingdom rests in God's decree. Now, that ought to baffle your mind a little bit. And the reason why is because it ought to bring up questions. Because there's been a lot of earthly kingdoms, and some of those earthly kingdoms have been worse than others. And at this point, everybody should start thinking about all the suffering that has come into the world because of kings. And then at that point, other people will begin to question, well, how is God sovereign even over suffering? Well, right here, Daniel doesn't explain that, but he tells you there's a truth that you have to accept. There has never been one reigning person who has not been on his or her throne that God himself did not decree that person to be there. And ultimately, that person, that kingdom, that nation has a purpose according to God's will. And we have to submit to that. Now, I think the scripture explains for us in different places that God is using the ultimate sin of all mankind 
to bring about his will, and we'll see it in the divine kingdom. But sometimes people have a wrong picture of God and his sovereignty, that that means if God really is real, and if he really is sovereign, then there should be no suffering. The problem is it discounts the reality of our own sin against the God who created all things. All kingdoms are in God's decree. That means even the divine kingdom rests in God's decree. When we speak of this divine kingdom this morning, we have to recognize that this is a kingdom inside of God's decree. Now, there's something that needs to be understood about the very kingdom, the divine kingdom we're speaking of. This kingdom in and of itself does not mean that there was a time when God was not sovereign and so therefore he had to come along and set up a divine kingdom because he had to fight through a whole bunch of stuff to get his sovereignty. That's what most kings have to do. That's not saying that. It's giving us an indication of the context of something very specific in the divine kingdom that we need to recognize is happening in the whole of the context of not only the cosmos uh, broadly, but in our world specifically. Because sin was brought in, there had to be something done to deal with that sin, and it's done in a great and massive way in the divine kingdom. This divine kingdom is dealing with something very specific to deal with the problem of sin. God has always been sovereign. There's never a time that he he himself was not and his sovereignty was not. He is and he always will be in being and therefore he is sovereign over all things. So whatever we want to think about the divine kingdom in its context, we can never take away the sovereignty of God in all things. Secondly, all kingdoms occur occur by the purpose and through the revelation of God's decree. All kingdoms occur by the purpose and through the revelation of God's decree. Now you could shorten that and just say all kingdoms occur through the revelation of God's decree. But the reason I added the context of the purpose is there's a sense here in verse 44 where it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. The idea of the will of God is his purpose. Now we're, we're seeing that through revelation. But Daniel in his prophecy here is telling us this is by purpose this is happening. So God's will and his purpose is his decree. And the decree of God being singular in nature, it just is singular in its nature, but it's progressive in its revelation. What does that mean? There is a decree, there is God's will and purpose, and at the same time, the will and the purpose of God are not revealed and known all at one time. It's progressive in its revelation. And we have to see that's the nature of the prophecy itself. What does the prophecy do? It lays out one kingdom, Babylon. It lays out another kingdom, Medo-Persia. It lays out a third kingdom, Greece. 
it lays out a fourth kingdom, Rome. That's progressive revelation. This kingdom will exist, go away. This kingdom will exist, go away. This kingdom will exist, go away. He's giving you a progressive revelation of something that's very earthly in its context, and yet it's setting up something that has eternal purpose. It's a progressive revelation. God previously, before verse 44, revealed the coming of four earthly kingdoms. God decreed their coming. He decreed their time frame and their terms. When I'm talking about terms, I mean like term limits. Okay? It's the idea of of Paul's preaching to the Athenians. God not only uh, determines your, your birth, but the boundaries of your habitation. God has planned and willed and purposed who you are, when you will be born, and what day you will die. And he even knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. Lesser or smaller. Right. I have a few less than I did a few years ago. He still knows the number. Some people shave off the hairs on their head. (laughs) Scott's given personal testimony. He still knows the numbers of the hairs on that round head. So God decreed the coming of these kingdoms, the time frame of these kingdoms, and even their terms, and He decreed it, and then He also revealed it. This is what's happening in all of this prophecy. God has decreed it. We're getting a picture of the decree of God. That's amazing that God would, in Revelation, give us a moment to see and to understand, this is what I decreed. And then we're seeing it revealed through Daniel as a prophet. It ought to be a little bit awe-striking to you that these four kingdoms actually existed in history and we have known historic information about each one of these four earthly kingdoms. And here, in very concise form, those kingdoms are revealed to Nebuchadnezzar before they existed. And it reminds us of the very power of God in Revelation in revealing His divine kingdom. If we think about these kingdoms, we have to understand there was a decree about their coming, their time frame, and their terms, And then there was an actuality in time of the coming of those kingdoms, their time frame. The 70 years of Babylon is known. We have a time frame that historians, I mean, they do debate it, but we have a time frame of the Roman Empire, more or less, here or there. The very decree of God revealed and actualized in time 
And each one of these kingdoms have their end. And they've been seen and known. Just as God decreed these kingdoms, he decreed the divine divine kingdom, its coming, its time frame, and its terms, and he decreed it, and then he also reveals it by revelation. And here we come in verse 44, he says, in the days of those kings, speaking of these previous kings, the God of heaven will set up. Now this is another part of progressive revelation. The divine kingdom was set up during these four earthly kingdoms. Now there's also an indication which we have to realize that that means the divine kingdom has been in its part and parcel being set up all the way along. If it weren't for the divine kingdom being worked out in the context of the life of Israel, and now Israel being taken away, Robin mentioned the northern kingdom being uh, taken away in 722 B.C., and now we're here at the time of Daniel, and the southern kingdom has been taken away in 605 B.C., uh, about 120 years later or so, and that being done, this kingdom is being set up all the way along because these four earthly kingdoms are necessary in their context for the divine kingdom to be set up. We'll deal with that in a little more as we move along. From the text, this divine kingdom is being set up during the, this 600-year period or so. There's blocks being built. There's blocks being not only built, but they're being laid and cemented. You may have seen a a bricklayer at some point work uh, in, in the context of building the foundation of a home or a building. They take each block. It's, it's already been formed and made out of concrete or clay or whatever. And they take that block and then they begin to set it down. And they, they lay them in place and cement them in place. And they make sure everything is true and tight and sturdy. Uh, you, you guys ever seen these crazy videos online about, you know, uh, it's some kind of TikTok fail or something. You know, something explodes or blows up or falls or whatever. Well, they had one of these fail videos, and these people had built this brick wall. And as they looked, the camera view was down the brick wall, and the brick wall is like this. That's how they built it. And I'm thinking to myself, who didn't know this was going to be a fail? I mean, you've got loaded weight, and you're putting it at an angle without anything to hold it up. And then you got to the corner down there and somebody went, oh man, these corners don't meet. Well, the divine kingdom is not set up like that. It's tried and true. Every block is in place. Everything that needs to happen for the the formulation 
and the actual coming and functioning of the divine kingdom is being set up, tried and true, one block at a time in the context of these four earthly kingdoms. That means that every one of these rulers had their place and time and their purpose in God's decree that they would be used by God even in sinfulness to bring about the actual divine kingdom and the functioning of it. Now what does Daniel prophesy and interpret from the dream about this divine kingdom? Well, he tells us of its, its setting up, but he says it's a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The divine kingdom is going to be set up during the time of these four earthly kingdoms, and the divine kingdom will never be destroyed by any other kingdom. And then he also tells us that the divine kingdom is the final kingdom. He says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. Think about Greece and Rome for a minute. Greece and Rome kind of melded into one another. There was war and there was battle and there were all kind of things like that, but they kind of melded into one another and then Rome took it further than Greece and spread out and it was kind of like Rome kind of took over what Greece had done. Greece kind of left a kingdom to Rome in a way. And that's not going to happen with a divine kingdom. It will not be left to another. It's the final kingdom. There's no other kingdom after it. It's coming, it's time, it's term limits. God says, well, it won't be destroyed, and it's the final kingdom. Thirdly, all kingdoms are ruled by a chosen person of God's decree. All kingdoms are ruled by a chosen person of God's decree. The dream, the interpretation of the dream and the prophecy coming from the dream tells us Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar ruled by God's order. Now, I want you all to think about that for a minute. We can pass over that. I can say that. You've heard other people say that. But I want you to take a minute and think about that. Cyrus the Great is ordered by God. Alexander. Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Now, if you've read much on Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus really thought nobody was greater than him. And Scripture is teaching us that God ordered him. God purposed him. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar rested by God's order. They, were, they ruled by God's order and they rested by God's order. However it is that they came to their end, it was by God's order. It was not a shock to God when they came to their end. If they were assassinated, 
functioning in the setting up of the kingdom. And thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar were replaced by God's order. Now, who is it that rested and replaced them? It's interesting. If you go back up to verse 32, it says, The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then Daniel says to the king, You continued looking. You continued viewing the statue in your dream. You saw it. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Whatever this stone is or whoever it is, this stone is with no human beginnings. See, all these other kings, they had human beginnings. But the prophecy tells us here that this stone was cut out without hands. Now we're not speaking of this in the context of that this stone could not take on human nature. But this stone did not have human beginnings. It's as one writer says, this stone is without collaboration with metals, gold through iron. Not arising from any material supplied by the image. Whatever this stone is, if it represents a king, like these other metals represent a king, it's like no other. It is a stone without decoration. It's unhewn and rough. Calvin said it was not conspicuous for excellence. But it's also a stone without human intervention, as the writer says. So we have a stone with no human beginnings. Daniel Further down in verse 44 and 45, he says that this kingdom, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And then he says, inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. This stone is revealing the future. And this stone was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar at the time. It's also the stone that the builders rejected. As one writer says, this stone is of an obscure kingdom. Now think about that for a second. Gold, silver, iron, bronze, those are things that are well known in the day and the time and even well known to us. We walk along a creek bank and see plenty of stones. They're just kind of obscure. And I can pick any one of them up and I can throw them in the stream. Or if it's maybe the right kind, I can skip it across the stream. It's just a stone. 
It's obscure. Well, this stone is representing a king that comes in an obscure way and manner. It's a king who comes and is rejected by his people. The obscurity, remember some weeks ago when we talked about the birth of Christ? Here's this baby born in what's essentially a, a stall for animals. And some wise men from the east are searching for this baby to worship him. Wasn't great news everywhere about this baby. But as soon as Herod heard about it, he wanted to know, didn't he? Other religious leaders wanted to know. This king comes in an obscure way and manner. And then when he comes, born of the Virgin Mary, he comes among a people. His people. And they reject him. It's a stone with no human beginnings. It's the stone revealed to Nebuchadnezzar 600 or so years before. And it's the stone that when he comes, the builders rejected. And it's the stone who is the cornerstone of his people. The cornerstone of his bride. He's the cornerstone of the church. Scott read to you all this morning, Matthew 18, and the idea of the context there is that there are people that gather in his name. It was true in the Old Testament people were gathering in his name. He was known as Messiah or the one who would come. This stone will be the king of all kings. Now, once again, I don't want to take away from the ruling and reigning of God and sovereignty in all things in all time and space. You can't take away from that. But there is a specific nature to the divine kingdom coming in such a way that it will right and reconcile the whole of the cosmos to the God who created it. Leads us to number four. All kingdoms are humbled by the sovereignty of God's decree. All kingdoms are humbled by the sovereignty of God's decree. There had been kings before Nebuchadnezzar. They had gone about doing their will, their way, thinking in their mind. They were doing it how they wanted to do it. But God in this prophecy is not just talking to us about Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying plainly, I've been dealing with this throughout all of time, space, and history. I have been working out the reality of a people for myself. Think about these leaders Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, and Caesar were all humbled by death. And their death ultimately left nothing everlasting for their people. 
What did Nebuchadnezzar leave for his people that was everlasting? What did Cyrus leave that was everlasting for his people? This stone is speaking of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ was humbled unto death for the salvation and eternal life of his people. You see the great juxtaposition between these kings? If the divine kingdom will endure forever and it will not end then it has to have a king of the same essence. And it has to have a king that can provide something for its people to bring about eternal life for them that they will not be a part of the great reckoning and judgment. They will not be those who are judged and put into the lake of fire. Nebuchadnezzar has been given just a slice, a piece of the sense of the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand all that. Daniel doesn't even understand all of that. You have to understand he's a prophet and he's an interpreter right here. He's not the end all to end all. That's in Christ. Daniel doesn't fully understand all of what he's saying in all of its essence and understanding. And yet he knows enough and understands enough to see the divine kingdom is far greater and far different than any of these other kingdoms. That kingdom will endure forever. That kingdom will destroy all the other kingdoms. And that kingdom will have a king who in and of himself is eternal, and he will bring eternal life to his kingdom and to the inhabitants of his kingdom. Well, I want to end with just a few thoughts this morning. What can we say of the kingdom, of this kingdom, the divine kingdom from this text? Don't try to write this sentence down. If you're, if you're a note taker, it's, it's a lengthy sentence. I'm just warning you now so you don't get frustrated. You can go back and listen to it online. This kingdom is the center point of history and does not end history or the world. Rather, it establishes the eternality of the reign of God Now, that's a mouthful, but it's really important for you to see this. The divine kingdom is not just in a linear fashion, something that comes along the line, and then it's setting something right in the moment. The divine kingdom is the center point of history in a whole-encompassing sense. The creation is a waiting the coming of this kingdom. Paul is recognizing that in Romans 8 when he says the the earth is groaning as in birth pains. 
He's recognizing that that had been going on and in some far future sense, it will continue to go on until He comes the second and final time. That means, though, this kingdom is the center point of history. It's not just along a line in a linear fashion. That kingdom's right smack dab in the middle of all the cosmos, and all the cosmos is surrounding that kingdom. That means that that kingdom is even more central than the sun itself. Speaking of our earthly sun. It tells us that this kingdom does not end history or the world. You realize that what is at hand here is that there will be a certain portion of earthly history that comes to a consummation at the return of Christ. And yet, there is life that goes on. The nihilist or the annihilationist says, everything just comes to an end. But the teaching on the divine kingdom says, no, that's not so. This kingdom will endure forever is what Daniel prophesied. There is going to be something that happens in time when Christ came and in his coming again. And it doesn't end history or the world. Rather, it establishes the eternality of the reign of God. See, this is the constant fight for us as humans. We're always trying to think we're the ones in control. And we're always living in denial of this truth of the eternality and the, the sovereignty of God. We're, we're kicking against that. As, as Revelation says, we're, we're kicking against the goads. We're going against it. No, 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 no. I'm in control. I'm in control. Me, 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 me. And one day all that's going to be set to rest. Now a big portion of that was set to rest in the very day of Christ coming on this earth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, when he was raised from the dead. That's why we're talking about Christ today all over the world. And that's one thing people who hate God can't seem to get in their head. You are the one fighting the uphill battle, not me. You're the one having to how, try to do mental cartwheels to tell us God doesn't even exist. And yet 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. Why? Because He is the divine King. As the center point of history, this kingdom establishes the eternality of the reign of God in a manifested, regenerative way unto the cosmos. The whole of this cosmos is going to get set straight. For believers, it will be reconciliation. For those who don't believe, it will be a reckoning. And I don't say that with any joy.
and this earth is going to be regeneratively restored. Whether that's by literal fire, as a forest fire just burns it all down and, and God begins anew with the new heaven and the new earth. Or if that's a li- some type of symbolic, metaphorical fire of nuclear war. I don't know that. But what I do know is that this earth will be done away with in its present state of existence and living in the context of there will be regenerative renewal. Christ is king now, and at that reckoning it will be known by unbelievers that he is king, and they will bow the knee in complete terror and fear. And those who believe will long to see him coming, and they will be brought up with him. And this earth will be regeneratively renewed. That His people would inhabit it. New earth and new heavens. And we would live under His kingship in a way that even not the whole of the earth is living now. For this regenerative work is a work for the cosmos as a whole. And it's a reckoning for the unbelieving and it's salvation to the believer. So we can say three things. As the center point of history, this kingdom appears suddenly with a decisive blow. And I tell you, that's already happened in the person and work of Christ. Christ suddenly appeared on the scene. So in a past sense, it's already happened. But there is still a far future sense where He will return. He's been coronated in His resurrection and in His ascension, but He will return one day. And it will be with a sudden and divisive blow. Decisive in its nature. Secondly, as the center point of history, this kingdom obliterates the existing structure. While all these other kingdoms on this earth are trying to figure out how to run everybody, whatever ism you want to put to it, communism, socialism, capitalism, blah, 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 whatever ism you want to put to it, while all the earthly people are trying to figure that out, And saying, we're going to figure out how everybody can live in harmony with a Coke and a smile. Suddenly, the divine king will come and will obliterate the existing structure. And this heaven and earth will be set back to the day, in a sense, of the garden with greater understanding. It will not be exactly like the garden, but it will be regenerative. And this earthly structure will be obliterated. Now that doesn't mean that there will not be kings or kingdoms or there will not be functioning of the earth. 
I'm not meaning obliterated in the sense that the earth is blown up. I just mean that the earthly structures will come under the very authority and power of this king. That, that's what I mean by that. I don't mean that we, the earth is literally blown off the, the cosmic scene. But I mean these earthly struggle structures will be obliterated in the sense that they will come under this very authority of this king. And they will all bow the knee. Sometimes it looks as though that that's happening now in different areas and ways. And we hope that there are nations that will bow the knee to God. And yet at the same time we recognize that will not be understood in its fullest sense until Christ returns. Thirdly, as the center point of history, this kingdom fills the whole earth and stands forever. We may find pockets of people and pockets of towns or tribes or groups or even states that in some way bow the knee to God now and we can be thankful for that and we can see it even in the past of our own country. It's not the same today as it was, but we can be thankful for that. But there's a day coming when Christ returns that there will be not one place or pocket anywhere found among the inhabitants of the new earth and the new heaven that they will not be bowing and worshiping and glorying and working and functioning under the the divine king and the divine kingdom. It leads us to ask the question then, how is the divine kingdom functioning now? Some of this is highly debated and many people struggle with this a lot. But I think the most explicit place that we see the functioning of the divine kingdom now is through the church. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't impact culture. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't impact political structures. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and do those things as believers that we have been designed to do in the context of our being. But the greatest evidence right now that we may see of the rule and reign of Christ is in the church. It's why those verses that Scott read to you are so important because in the church is where we have biblical and godly accountability that the rule and reign of Christ can go forward. I look forward to a day when every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow the knee to the divine king. I can't even imagine what this regenerated earth, heaven and earth, is going to be like and what it will be like to function on it. I think, I think I'm going to be out of a job, so you need to pray for me. I'm not sure what I'll do. Because in that future kingdom, I won't have to tell anyone to know the Lord. For in the new covenant, they all know him. And the greatest expression of that we have presently is in the local church.
May we see the divine kingdom in some sense of its essence. Because I certainly in this time frame have not said all that could be said. But I would even say to you all that I understand it all. Because I don't. Some of you have some different opinions on the divine kingdom. And that's fine. But you have to understand, I don't think one of us could stand and say, I know it all about the divine kingdom. That's why this morning it's important to see it at, at, at its very essence. It will endure forever because the divine king is eternal. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to us even in this time of discussing the divine kingdom that we may see bits and pieces although they may be larger bits and pieces. Lord, may we take these things home and realize that this is a place for our encouragement. We'll watch the news tomorrow and be discouraged once again. Help us to remember that your kingdom endures forever. We'll look at Facebook or TikTok or Fox News online or whatever, and we'll be frustrated, depressed, or struggling once again. Help us to remember your kingdom endures forever. May these things be an encouragement to us to strive for the coming day, whether that's the day that you take us home or the day that you send your son, that we may be alive on this earth or not. May we look for his coming day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.